What's up, hardcore humans? Welcome to another episode of the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Today, we are talking with the man, the myth, the legend, George Clinton of Parliament Funkadelic. It's hard to overstate George's influence on music because Parliament Funkadelic was so innovative and so ahead of its time. Everything from hip-hop to funk to psychedelic and rock music owes George and Funkadelic a tremendous debt of gratitude, as was evidenced by Parliament Funkadelic's 2019 Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. And so I was absolutely thrilled to get a chance to talk with him about how he has approached his life and his career. Now, one of the main things that George and I talk about is the concept of obsession. Unfortunately, there has generally been a negative connotation to the term obsession. It's seen as a mental health problem where you can't get unwanted thoughts out of your mind. And for many people, especially people who suffer from obsessive-compulsive disorder, this type of obsession can be painful and interfere with their leading a healthy and fulfilling life. But in the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program, we believe that the term obsession can actually refer to a very invigorating and energizing process by which one is consumed by their purpose. As George describes it, this type of obsession feels like when people are in the zone, or what has been described as flow. It's more like a life-affirming drive in which there is something that is so important to us that we throw ourselves into it and continue to work to make progress, whether it's our work, art, music, a sport, or family and friends. And if we can embrace this form of obsession, it can help us achieve our life goals as we embrace our authentic selves. And on the Hardcore Humanism podcast, we want to talk with people who are obsessed with their purpose so we can learn from them about how to lead a purpose-driven life. And one of the things that George talked about was his obsession with different phenomena, remarkable cultural events that go way beyond momentary popularity. These are the things that seem to drive our culture and society forward. And it was fascinating to hear George describe his obsession with phenomena since he himself created a phenomenon in Parliament Funkadelic that is still contributing to the evolution of our culture today. So let's hear what George has to say. All right, Mr. Clinton, thank you so much for being on the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Welcome. Oof. (laughs) Thanks for having me, man. Glad to be here. <laughs> so we were talking beforehand about uh, a topic that I have a lot of interest in, which is the concept of obsession in life, but particularly in art. And one of the things that we were talking about is how you have gotten obsessed about painting in the pandemic and how that's led to a, a tremendous amount of productivity. And so what I want to do is just take it all the way back to when you first were an artist, particularly as a musician, and talking about, you know, when you noticed that you got obsessed with the creative side of yourself? To tell the truth, I got obsessed with um, the art of singing in a singing group, not even from myself. I saw Frankie Lyman do Why Do Fools Fall in Love? And I saw the reaction that People gave that. I was obsessed with that kind of phenomenon, you know, in in singing. And throughout my history in the music, I've always been obsessed with doing it. Like, I worked at the Hula Hoop place, and that was like an obsession. When that thing was so big, I was like one of the, the teenagers in the neighborhood who got jobs at the Hula Hoop factory before they had a union, and we pretty much ran it out of New Jersey. 
So we was obsessed with phenomena. I always related to the twist, you know, you know, Beatles when they came along. Another one I want to mention before we get started is Davy Crockett. When I was a kid, everybody had a Davy Crockett jacket, coat, backpack, whatever. It was about those phenomena that I realized that if you're going to do anything, you got to focus so thoroughly on it that you become obsessed with it. You know, so when we got to doing music at first with Detroit, with Motown, we couldn't get past the temptation. So I had to get another obsession and go a route that I had more control over, which was funk music. You know, we got there too late to be part of the pop side of it. So we had to switch our focus and we got obsessed with being funky. I mean, you know, literally, I mean, comically, we did everything we could to be super funky from the diapers to the, the holiday in towels, you know, as costumes, um, wigs, you know, anything we felt that could be stupid. And we got obsessed with being there with it like that. And as the music talent grew slicker, we always had to play it down, you know, with being funky and loose till we actually got to being able to make chaos work. We was obsessed with it so much we could actually run across the stage and never bump into each other, you know, playing like we're in church. And we was obsessed with that groove, that phenomenon. And after a while, you just disappear and you're just floating in, you know, like transcendental. We was obsessed with that, with that being on the one with each other and dancing underwater and not getting wet. You know, those kind of theories of the kind of rhythm it takes to dance through what we have to live through. You can dance underwater and not get wet. So we was obsessed with giving ourselves an excuse to do what we were doing. We justify our obsession, even though it was ridiculous. We were still on the mothership traveling into outer space and we was obsessed with being there. And it, it became part of our reality. You know, and when the pandemic thing came along and we had to shut down, the second part of our existence is the artistry, the album covers and, you know, the people getting their reality of what they think Funkadelic is about through the pictures. Over to Lord, been living with me for the last 20 years. So I'm around his doodling and his artistry all the time that I got sucked into that a long time ago. And with the pandemic thing jumped off, I started painting, you know, more focused and concentrating. Okay, this is my pandemic imagery. And at the same time, while this is going on, we got spaceships landing on Mars and stuff. I recognize that 21st century I've been waiting on all this time is actually here. We get ready to do a quantum leap into another whole set of realities that interpretations we used to deal with aren't the same anymore. I gave on, up on reasoning a long time ago. So as I realized what goes up don't have to come down. So that makes a lot of reality and logic suspect to me. When you talk about a phenomenon, and it's so interesting because there's, there's different levels of 
popularity, there's different levels of the way that something may penetrate and become present in a culture. But a phenomenon is something very specific and unique. And the things that you mentioned were phenomena, as as was Parliament, you know? And so the, the question that I would have for you is, how do you understand the term phenomenon? Like, what makes something a phenomenon for you? It's just beyond that place where you could reasoning it out, but it's, it still makes sense, you know? And it works, not only makes sense, it works very good, and it wasn't supposed to, or nobody never thought of it. And it catches on right now. They trending is the new word, but phenomenon is that quantum leap that you know it's not only a hit right now, but it's going to be a hit in generational terms, not as the, to this week's top chart or this month top chart, but the charts that span you know fifty to hundred years. Classical that's in music terms. But, you know, like uh, those other things, like you can hype some into a phenomenon nowadays. You know, they got this um, all this stuff that's going on with the what's called bitcoins and stuff. That's a phenomenon that, you know, is still up for people still debating. It's pretty much done crossed that threshold to phenomenon. Now. <laughs> it's so interesting because when something is a phenomenon in, in whatever sense, there is a, there's an energy that's yeah. in it. That's yeah, so I, much, that's, it's so much different. It's, it's one plus one equals seven. Yeah. You know? Right. And, right. and it seems as though people are looking for things to connect to that just go beyond the, the basic transactional interaction of, of the art or the cultural piece. You know, they want to be, they want to have something that feels a little bit more all encompassing, a little bit more, uh, immersive, if you will. You're going to get a whole lot of that right about now, you know, with with all of this reinterpretation of um, virtual reality versus reality. And like I said, we're leaving the planet now. There's That's got to be a whole lot of new rules to, you know, the way things work. You see, they test how do medicines work on the human body when they're out of space. You know, with the absence of gravity, how are you going to get down? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So you got to come up with all these new theories on just how we relate to each other. I mean, I can't get to kids playing those games, those new games on on the gaming shows. I mean, that's that, my head don't even know how to wrap around what's supposed to be going on. You know what I'm saying? And to them, it's like a whole nother language. You know, but I can understand that it's, it's here because I've been waiting on it. I just didn't know what it was going to look like. You know, I've been waiting on it since I, the holodeck on Star Trek. You know, all of the realities. And then when you think of just psychological makeup of human beings, that's another computer that's you know, got to reconcile itself with the, what's in your DNA map. We don't even know what all that, that map means. There's a lot of stuff we haven't got to, to what it's supposed to do for us. We do those things right now, not knowing that somewhere in your DNA, there's an excuse for it. You know, all of that stuff is waiting for somebody to put some interpretation on and some theories on, but it's here on the real side. It's here right now. 
You see, and that that's the thing that I feel like a lot of times people are looking for with a phenomenon is that they're trying to make sense of yeah. the world. <laughs> you know, they're trying to understand. And what's so interesting about what you were talking about is that once you feel as though you could commit to, in this case, your own phenomena, your own artistic and creative phenomenon, then all of a sudden the rules change. And it's like, well, why not do something that doesn't get done? Why not wear diapers? You know, like, why not, why not push the boundaries of everything? I mean, I was, I was even just listening to, to Maggot Brain just before we came in. It's just like, why, why not just take it out? You know, but it's, it's that, and that's what I think people are looking for in their life. They're looking for some kind of reason to break through of those, those boundaries or those, those bo- I don't know. I don't know what the term is exactly. I think that's in our human nature to, to evolve. It's got us seeking, you know, we're growing, we get into trouble, we do things wrong, but that's part of evolution. And then defining it, it works before we even know what it's supposed to work for. So as we evolve, I, a lot of things happen that we have no excuse for, you know, mentally, physically, they kind of they kind of can get a map on that. You know, until something happened with some foreign chemical that makes you multiply in a different direction, you know, like, <laughs> you know, atomic type stuff, the effect it has on the, on the biological forms is a whole nother thing. So there's so much to to know <laughs> and it's all coming along and people are expecting that they know and good story writers give you some good possibilities. Thinking is our, I don't know, it's our blessing and our curse at the same time. Now, let me ask you this. When you are in that obsessive creative space, you know, what does a day in the life look like for someone who is obsessed with music? I don't even know if you call it a career. It's more of a, a purpose, if you will. And the closest thing I can think of is, is you know, when they somebody say you're in the zone, you're in the zone. You don't know, you're just going with it. You know, you, you feel like you won with it all. But to be able to stop and analyze it at that moment would get in the way of whatever's going on. I mean, it took me a long time to go back. Oh, I remember this picture. I remember what's going But then as I slow it down and think about, oh, I remember this whole time. I just I thought of it for the first time consciously. When you're doing it like that, it's just a zone. You, I can, I couldn't, I didn't know what was going on from one day. You can say that because you know everybody was high too. You know, you were getting high, but that wasn't the thing. You was high anyway with all of that was going on. You know, all that was happening that made you high. But I guess that's just part of the setting to be drunk, high, whatever the the concept is of the day. I call it trendy chemical substance. Whatever it is, somebody's gonna be partaking in it. But that's not the whole thing. When it's in that kind of zone that you we were in with the mothership, you'd have been high anyway. You wouldn't have no excuse. But, you know, and a lot of people call it crazy. Because to me, crazy is a prerequisite, you know, to, you know, to do that real good shit. Everybody I know that do the real extreme good music, pretty crazy in their normal life. Well, it just seems like on some level, Again, when you think about what your commitment was, it's by definition, 
you're saying, I'm going to break down the conventional boundaries that have been set up of how someone approaches art, how someone approaches a career, how someone approaches performance. And once you're willing to do that and say, I'm just going to be in this, you know, stepping outside yourself is one of the things that, that keeps people from doing things that they wish they hadn't done often. And so if you're basically like, look, I'm just in this 100%, you, you kind of lose a little bit of that self-consciousness, a little bit of that reflection. <laughs> you lose a lot of that. You lose a lot of that because if you stop and think of it, you you think you you think better before you did it. It's got to be you got to be trusting in. So even if it's working, you got to be trusting a flow, a groove, a vibe, and that's what I trust. You know, the, the, I call it the funk. Or in Star Wars, they say use the force loop. I know I could be totally ridiculous at any given point if I was someplace else. But I know it's the perfect thing to do right now. I wouldn't go dare go home to Jersey where I used to live and put on the clothes I used to wear. Because I know what we would say about anybody that came through there with that shit on. So I could take that shit on, you know. I know all it. I worked in a barbershop. I, ma- I did people hair. So I know what was cool for where. But now it's in theater now. And I wanted to be above and beyond theater. I wanted to be like hair, you know, those kind of plays. I wanted to make that kind of statement. I didn't want to just be a, a pop star. I wanted to be a character. Your characters live longer than, than people do. Mickey Mouse, any generation, there's a Mickey Mouse boy. And so I wanted to be characters on the stage, not just a group or a singer. That way you could last longer. It was like job preservation too. Your job lasts longer. You can always find another excuse to do it. However, the kids make it new because the kids are always going to change it. They're going to come along and make whatever you did corny anyway. So if you're a character, you can switch to whatever they got coming up and be part of what they're doing. You know, and that's the way I always looked at it. Like, and that's pretty crazy if you think of it normally. <laughs> Going with that theme, you know, of the idea, you know, one nation under a groove, you know, when you're talking about that level of, of ambition in a way, you know, uh-huh. that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the entire nation. Planet. Yeah. An entire planet. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm kind of curious just for you, when you start thinking in those terms, did that change how you were doing things or did it just say no this is just the natural extension of what we've been doing from the moment we started when i saw what the beatles was doing when i saw what they were doing to rec- to regular rock and roll you know and i was around with chuck berry and even Isley brothers twist and shout i saw how the, when the beatles came along and they did that version of what the reality they were in especially when they got to sergeant pepper you know, it was no longer just the insinuation of acid, but there was a place, there was a reality in people's head that that was peace, peace, and all of that was there. So when I realized that, that could be a, achieved, I went straight into that direction. I, before that, it was Motown, Phil Spector, anybody who had a phenomenon going. I knew all the ones that had a bunch of artists. That, but when the Beatles came out, and they were able to transcend all the pop, whatever the charge was talking about, and go where they went. I knew that, oh, we can do that too. And that's that was my 
you know, and all the way to off the planet. I even, I, I even got, like I said, when I saw Star Wars, I thought they was talking about us because we had already did Mothership. So when I heard them talking about Mothership, I thought we was connected somewhere. Now, at what point did you, I mean, again, unless you feel like the, the work has not been done yet, but at what point did you feel like things had moved into phenomenon status with what you were doing? Um, when we landed the mothership, you know, and, you know, especially that Houston and L.A., but when we landed in Madison Square Garden, you know, it was like, okay, this is definitely phenomenal. I can only, only place I can go now is underwater. And, and when we did Atomic Dog, because we laid off two years, and we came right back with Atomic Dog, I knew then that the whole thing was a phenomenon. You know, because that was even different than anything we had ever done. And I don't even know where it come from. We just morphed into those kind of things. You know, Flashlight and Atomic, those were not songs that going to be around for a year or two. Those will be around for a long time because they were so far ahead of their time when we did them that they sound right right now. They sound like somebody just did those kind of computerized songs. So from the mothership to Atomic Dog. We knew we knew we had, we had made a footprint then, and and just because you know people can have different reactions to this, but when the music was then you know people were taking it, especially hip hop artists were just taking it and sampling it, and it it was becoming so pervasive. When that happened, was that okay? This is even more evidence that this is a that, phenomenon. That's what I'm saying. Between those times, between that mothership and Atomic Dog. You had hip hop emerge right in there, right in the midst of that, that we realized the music was just beginning again. When, you know, we started hearing me, myself, and I, and then you started hearing uh, Rock Kim and Eric B, uh, the public enemy on the East Coast. Then you had Dre them on the West Coast, Humpty Dent on the, you know, North, West. Everybody was sampling it. It let me know the music was making babies now. We could actually go stand in the corner and, and be in the background for a minute and let the music do continue what we were doing. It was still the DNA of what we had just done. And that way we were able to get back into the into the mix. I ended up doing songs with Kendrick Lamar. He did songs with myself, you know, and Flying Lotus, Ice Cube. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Scarface. All of that's what we're doing right now. We're getting ready to go into tour with Scarface now. You know what I'm saying? All of that keeps putting you back into the mix. And now let's talk a little bit about, because when when you've got that level of freedom and that level of, of a phenomenon, and then, you know, something we were talking about right before we started recording was, all of a sudden the pandemic hits and in a world where there's no boundaries, all of a sudden, boom, you know, like there's a limitation. How do you take that obsession into your art with those kind of constraints? You know, I, I look at art pretty much the same way I look at music, the frequencies, you know, the energy that flows through a painting or the art, and the same thing that flows through, say, one of our shows of the, or the songs, the imagery that it conjure up, 
and like the album covers and things. All of that's pretty much the same. Once I realized, because I'm actually colorblind too, but I'm I don't have no inhibition about color because I don't know what's supposed to not be there. It's just shades and tones that I can feel. I can feel tones of you know vibrations and things you would call it to pretty much an exceptional degree now because I can see appreciation on people's faces. When I see them look at something, I don't even know what they see. But I feel good when I see it, and it transforms different different shapes and tones and things that um, I have a language that I can speak through that actually repeats itself and openly helped me understand what he called a language when you, your signature, the strokes, okay, it's like a handwriting. It's like the same stroke that I feel when I direct the band on the stage, the swipes and the feels. So all of that I transferred from the, from the stage right to the art. And I got, like you say, obsessed with how it was turning out. I even when it got me an art manager and um, curate and everything, we got building full of interesting work. We're getting ready to have some, a, a nice virtual showing pretty soon. Is there a theme to the work? Well, it's going to be pandemic art. You know, that's the things that, that I felt while being, you know, I didn't ever see it as um, locked up for six to eight months. I was obsessed with getting up early and coming down to the art room and jump on the canvas. It didn't bother me. that I was hoping nobody didn't interrupt me to do nothing. And, and, and then I realized, oh, a lot of people are stressing because there's nothing to do. I don't know nothing about that. I don't, don't, I don't want to be convinced of that reality. So I ended up painting. And matter of fact, I was painting birdhouses out in the backyard. It was the Anderson Cooper saw me, <laughs> something I had posted. He called me up and had me on CNN with my birdhouses. You know, I, you can't see me, but the whole backyard is full of colorful birdhouses. And that, and it was a, a hip topic to talk about, but I was just getting started. One, one thing I'm kind of curious about is that with that obsession, you know, doing the phenomenon with the way the art flows and you get on that frequency, has there ever been anything that you have found that has limited that where you were kind of noticing, you know, this is, this is getting in the way of my being able to kind of connect in with that flow, with that frequency? Well, I was doing that in the beginning because I can't draw, you know, and that was like, you know, bugging me at first until, you know, Overton started showing me artists that, you know, did deal in abstracts and feel. And then I was, remember all this thing I used to hear over my life, expressions. And then that stuff started making sense to me what it meant as I started looking at other paintings and what I felt it was the same way I felt about music. Like I worked at Motown, so I know what straight, clean cut, correct supposed to be. But I majored in actually doing the opposite of that when I started doing Funkadelic. I started to experiment with sloppy and you know, and all the stuff that you're not supposed to do when you're in the studio. I did a lot of that. So I always gauged myself about not overdoing that too much, not being too hard on myself, but I knew I couldn't draw. So once I was 
got that out of the way, you don't have to draw. You, you know, you just do what you do, what you feel, and then your expression that has some kind of um, connection with people. You know, I've seen that once I started doing it, a lot of people come in liking the stuff. Okay, whatever it is, I ain't going to argue with it. It's working. And so do you feel as though the connection with people is a big part of how you you connect in or do you connect in on your own and then you kind of see afterwards whether or not people are into it? I I think I just do stuff and when people connect with it, I'll get, I'll pay attention to it and focus on it, you know, but I know that I'm in a zone already that it's been accepted. So I'm, I can let myself go and just trust my, you know, trust the funk. One of the things that I, I get frustrated by, right, is that there are people out there who love you and love your music and and I'm sure that they're going to love your your painting etc but then they see a kid who is doing things differently when they're young like doing things that are outside the box like you know not necessarily obeying the rules of of art that you're supposed to have and they'll kind of throw a wet blanket on it and they don't make the connection between like well that's now it's like oh okay great he's he's successful so well you know but but what we want is for is for people to see that in kids before they're successful, even in adults. Now, I'm just kind of curious from your perspective, like whether it was from your own experience of just what you've seen, like what are the things that we can do to encourage people to, to take those creative risks and to kind of connect in with that flow? My thing is if we elevate the concept of teachers, the, the profession teachers, if we elevate them to the highest we could possibly be because they they teach everybody everything that's being done. Teachers have to be the one to do that. They should be catered to and elevated to such an importance that the the people that, that turns out from them it'll reflect on them. We have so such disrespect for teachers. I mean, that's not just like any job. That's an important job, and they have to like really take care of you kids right from the beginning all the way through. So I think our misunderstanding of what teachers are doing or here for actually put us to a disadvantage because if they teach us dumb, we're going to be dumb. And if they ain't got no reason to want to be passionate about what they do, you know, they should should be catered to. Those are the most important people. That, that to me, will solve a lot of the problems that we try to solve we're incapable of solving those. We didn't learn enough. We weren't taught enough to actually understand the psychological things that that we um, put the task to, like try to analyze what to, how to teach a kid. That that's got to be done way ahead of time, and it's hard for us to to do that after the fact. Did you have any experiences in particular with teachers that were like really helpful for you in terms of? Moving you along? I had two teachers, Miss Bamgardner, I forget the other one's name, but they would always come to the other teachers and tell them, he can do this, he know what you're talking about, but he's going to be a singer. I could do the work, but you know, I did just enough to get my grades through, and those two would actually come along, you know, and tell them he can actually do it, you know, it, he just he, his head just ain't there, so don't don't fret. And so you know they helped me get past a couple of times when I probably got failed. 
because I, I could do it, but I just wasn't paying any attention and I was being stubborn. I figured that out probably in the the 60s when um, the whole hippie revolution came about. I saw kids and teachers all in, say, in Boston doing that in 68 year. I saw what it took to actually, I got educated more that year from listening at the kids and the teachers, you know, in Boston Common, that I learned a lot from there. And I was, I was thinking that that needed to be the way teachers needed to be everywhere. But it was just for probably a couple of years, that 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 whole hippie revolution for a minute. Everybody, you know, the civil rights stuff took place. All of that was merged together. I mean, I was right there in Boston and hanging out with the kids at Timothy Leary. <laughs> who, who, by the way, was very central. His theories on, on interpersonal functioning was actually central to my dissertation, which is a, a whole nother, a whole nother discussion. Because <laughs> most people know him, most people know him in, in a cultural context, but I know him in terms of his work he did on interpersonal theory, yes. which actually like set the, which actually was the, was the basis, at least in part for my, for my dissertation. It influenced me a lot in my career. It's funny how people like know people in different contexts, you know? Yeah. He, he had some, he had some other kind of theories on that, you know, the space travel too. Yeah. And so how did you personally build a culture around you? You know, because, because one of the things that you're talking about, like if you, if you think about, at least from my perspective, humanistic theory, we, we base hardcore humanism on, it's, it's a lot about when everyone's telling you to go right, you have the guts to go left, you know, and you figure out this is my purpose. And, and you know, okay, this is the thing that matters to me, these kind of phenomenons. I'm going to get really into it. I'm going to work really hard on it. But then there's the, that part also about trying to find the people who are right to kind of support you in this, you know, and, and people who are going to sit there and be like, oh, you know, I want you to have the, the more out there ideas, the more intense, not less, you know, and, and, and I'm just kind of curious over the years, how you were able to connect with or disconnect from, you know, connect with people who are helpful and disconnect from people who maybe weren't so much. <laughs> I, I basically let the funk do it. You know, obviously, you know, I wouldn't argue too much. I just did what I thought, and most of them that's got it ain't gonna let you get get it by yourself. They come, they crazy too, you know. Some, you know, have something else to do. They stay there a while. It's kind of like Sunrise Band, you know. It was like a community, and once you ever in the band, you always been in the band. You're always in the band, no matter where you go. So it was some didn't didn't want to say dress like we dressed in the beginning. They wanted to hold on to the the styles that we had at the barbershop. But after a while, they gave into it. It was funkier than you ever saw them, thought them to be. Other ones came in, you know, like Bernie Warrell was a classically trained piano player. His mother said he had never played that funky music, but he played it better than most people in the whole world played it, you know. And a couple of them came out of church and they weren't supposed to be out there. Gary Scheider and Glenn Gorn. You know, that black people have their church. They don't, you don't supposed to be doing that stuff, singing that good for no clubs. But once they got out, they, they made their mark on history. So it, 
if you're in Funkadelic, you're supposed to be in there for some reason. I, I didn't know all the time myself. Some people asked, why is, why is so-and-so there? We had a couple of people. I never knew they was in the band, but they played with us so long, so many places, that as we put our history down, we have to say, yeah, I guess they was in the band. They was everywhere we went. But, you know, it's so interesting because one of the things when I'm working with people that I talk to them about is that until you get super into the things that you love, you're not going to necessarily as easily meet the right people. Because what you're what you're talking about is the way that you met the right people was that it was about connecting. You know, you're talking about connecting to the funk. I really encourage people to to just dig deep into what they're into. Like whatever it is, you're into baseball, get super into baseball. You're into funk, get super into funk. You're into computers, whatever it is, and that that's going to be one of the places where yeah. you meet the people who kind of get you. You know, because this when you're in that flow state, that's your that's your best place. Yeah, that's where you connect that, and that's what you agree on, and that's where your best connection will be. Is there anything that you're doing now that you want to talk about that we haven't? Yeah, well, I just did a, a collaboration with John Fluvog on some new shoes. This is the second time we did it, and it's a piece of my artwork. And um, we're giving 10% of the sales to Clinton College, which is my great-great-grandfather, who started this college, this, uh, you know, in uh, South Carolina. So these shoes, is, they they bad, put it like that. They bad. <laughs> Wait, he, start, he started a college in South Carolina? Yeah, it's BCU colleges. And it's, uh, it's the Clinton College. It's in South Carolina. It's, it's one of the major ones now. My great-great-grandfather, he was the head of the, the college, Ism Clinton. His brother... Frederick Clinton was the first black senator for Lancaster, South Carolina. He was one of the Reconstruction senators. So we just, my wife has been doing the, the um, ancestry. And so we got it to, and when we called the cop, that the college, you know, they already knew it. So we been making the donation to them from the shoes. But yes. Can we talk about who both of those people are? I'm just getting convinced of the story myself. Like I said, my wife did the DNA, but they had a hell of a history with the the, the Reconstruction senators. Wait, so who was first? The, the person who started the college or the senator? The senator was first. Senator was Frederick Albert Clinton. And then um, Bishop Ism Clinton, that's my great-great-grandfather, okay? And then they got the whole, whole DNA thing. <laughs> You know, and it's it's reminiscent of what we did with funk. They was the funky ones back in those days. Um, the senator was a slave, and his master actually taught him to read and write, and he erected a monument in the slave master. They taught him and his brother to, to read and write. And it's a whole, a whole history online about him now. And it took a minute to convince me to even pay attention to it. And then pretty soon, we went to the church, we went to the cemetery, and to the Library of Congress, and they all had done all of the due diligence. And I'm saying, well, I guess it's true. As a matter of fact, for the first time, I just spoke to some cousins of mine yesterday, reminiscing that we got to get together now and compare notes. Wow. Just from my perspective, like in terms of seeing since then, 
you say Parliament Funkadelic's effect on the world in terms of, again, what you're talking about, that there's a lot of ways of having that funk. You know what I mean? That there's a lot of different ways that funk can kind of be in someone's life. It can yeah. express itself. Funk is also an attitude. Funk is an attitude that you take to save your life. After you do the best you can, you say funk it. To me, and that's to me, I see that attitude applies in a lot of situations. You like to just do the best you can and leave it alone. You know, I mean, don't trip out, don't beat yourself up. But once you know that you've done the best you can, you can literally be all right with yourself. Mm. God, I don't know. I don't know how we're going to take that on. I feel like that's its own whole story. That I, I, God, I'm so looking forward to people piecing together your history and seeing that even, I mean, look, even if you can have a broader cultural influence, but now you're talking about really like um, just such a fantastic continued legacy of your family. Am I, am I wrong about this or am I? No, no. Like I said, like I said, I'm just not finding out about it myself. So I, I can't, I can't help you right there. I'm still analyzing it myself. All right, listen, you don't you don't have to promise, but I'm just I'm just asking if at some point down the road we could do something again when this comes out and like yeah. talk about this. Cause this is, I mean, I just feel like um there's something about this that just feels very, very compelling and empowering. This idea of a lineage of people who made such huge change. Well, I'll tell you, my wife came up with the information. They was the senator was involved in the uh, signing of the 13th Amendment, he was involved in that. They was, they was, they was, they got letters of them talking to Frederick Douglass. You know, got put it like that. Well, listen, I, I I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and and sharing these ideas with me. Obviously, you know, your music's been so influential and it's it's been such a big part of my life. But just getting to hear kind of again how you how you went about it, yeah, I really appreciate the time. Thanks a lot, man. Take care. All right. Take care. So there you have it. George Clinton talking about the concept of obsession and how he was so obsessed with cultural phenomena that it helped propel him to become a larger-than-life cultural icon himself. And it was so exciting to have him share with us his newly discovered information about his ancestry that shows how Clinton's life of funk is clearly a continuation of his revolutionary family legacy. We can learn so much from George about how we can connect with our mothership, our obsession, so that we can be in the zone and live a purpose-driven life. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder, Island Booman, for producing this podcast, and my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you hear on the podcast, go to our website and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And if you'd like to take the next step and make change in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program at HardcoreHumanism.com. So get at it, Hardcore Humans. See you next time.